Good morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Who do you say I am? This was the question Jesus asked his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. All around them, people were wondering who Jesus was. Some said he was John the Baptist. Some said Elijah. Some Jeremiah or another of the prophets. The Eastern Orthodox theologian John Baer says that Jesus' question, who do you say I am, is the question that all Christian theology seeks to answer. I think that's a lovely way to think about the task of theology. But more than that, uh, Baer says, it is the unavoidable question for all Christian disciples, for all who would learn Christ, the knowledge of whom is eternal life. That's why I think in Matthew's gospel, Jesus turns the question directly to his disciples. First, he asks in general, who do people say the Son of Man is? What's the talk? What are the latest theories? And the disciples answer, well, some are saying this, some are saying that. John, Elijah, Jeremiah. But then Jesus makes it personal. But who do you say I am? There's an emphasis on the you. Jesus is putting them on the spot. It's not enough to survey what the people out there are saying about Jesus. It's not an abstract question or an intellectual one. It is a personal question, one that demands a response. It's a question that we all have to answer, really. In one way or another, our entire lives will finally make up our answer. As Amanda has already told us this morning, Epiphany is the season when the church most directly takes up this question. Epiphany is the season of the revelation or the manifestation of Jesus Christ. It's the season when the church meditates over a number of weeks on the identity of Jesus. At Christmas, Jesus is born. In Epiphany, we learn who he is. And so the lectionary readings for the season of Epiphany are chosen and arranged specifically to unfold for us week upon week the revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ. Every season of the church year points us to Jesus, but there's a sense in which Epiphany is the most Christological season, that is, the most concerned with Jesus' identity. Each week, the Epiphany readings are almost falling over themselves in their eagerness to show us who this tiny baby born at Christmas really is. This week, our gospel reading comes from one of the most Christological chapters in all the Bible, John chapter 1. It's the story of John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God, followed immediately by the story of Jesus' first disciples. Uh, I don't always have tidy outlines, certainly not alliterative ones, but this week I do. (laughs) I didn't expect so many laughs when I said that. 
Uh, my sermon comes with two points, revelation and response. Uh, don't get used to it. It probably won't happen again for a long time. <laughs> revelation and response. John the Baptist's revelation of Jesus' identity and the disciples' response to it. The baptism of Christ is a central focus of the Epiphany season for obvious reasons. Jesus has spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. His baptism is the moment when he is publicly revealed. It's interesting that John's gospel doesn't have a full story of Jesus' baptism. Some people say that the first half of our passage today, John 1, uh, verses 29 to 34, is actually John's account of the baptism. Other people say it had probably already happened, and John is just referring back to it. Uh, I don't think it matters particularly. (laughs) Either way, these verses function as the baptism for John, in the sense that this is the moment when Jesus is publicly revealed. John the Baptist announces first that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean, the Lamb of God? Well, it was an idea that the Jewish people would have been quite familiar with. The phrase Lamb of God only appears here in the whole Bible, but lambs are everywhere. Lambs had first been offered in the Passover, the story of Israel's great deliverance from Egypt, and they remained part of that celebration. They were also the most common animal offered in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Lambs were offered every morning and evening as part of the burnt offering. So these were deep in the consciousness of the people of Israel. And then, building on these ideas, Isaiah the prophet had foretold that a servant of the Lord would come who would be led away like a lamb to slaughter. A lamb who would be, Isaiah says, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. For the Jews of Jesus' day, lamb sacrifices were a memorial of their deliverance, especially Israel's deliverance, and of the removal and forgiveness of sin. So all this makes up the background of John's announcement that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This man, John the Baptist was saying, the man standing next to you right now on the banks of the Jordan River is the Lamb of the Passover, is the fulfillment of Moses' sacrificial system. He is the one Isaiah wrote about who would come to take away the sins of the people. John announces second that he saw the Spirit of God descend and remain on this man. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. John is referring to the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit did indeed come down and rest on Jesus. But like John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God, this statement too makes no sense except in the context of the Old Testament scriptures, especially Isaiah. I'm just going to read three different passages from Isaiah quickly. In Isaiah 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch will grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding 
counsel and might of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again in Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I have chosen who whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The spirit coming down and resting on Jesus in his baptism was also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And for John the Baptist, it was confirmation that this was indeed the servant of the Lord, the lamb Isaiah had written about. John says, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Uh, You might wonder, weren't John and Jesus cousins? (laughs) How can John say, I myself did not know him? I think this is actually an important point. Presumably, John did know Jesus before this. But I think his point here is, John did not figure out for himself that this Jesus was the Lamb of God. He himself did not know him. This came from the Holy Spirit. No one can know who Jesus is unless the Spirit reveals it to them. No one can answer the question we started with, Who do you say I am on their own? So John the Baptist has fulfilled his role as the herald of Jesus Christ. He has announced publicly both that this man, Jesus, is the Lamb of God and that that announcement has been confirmed in the Spirit's descent on Jesus. I think it's worth pausing to notice here that John's announcement is entirely according to the Scriptures. It makes no sense apart from God's previous revelation in the law and the prophets. The point is, there is no Jesus out there for us except the Jesus of the Bible. We acknowledge this when we confess in the creed that Jesus died and rose again according to the scriptures. It is through the Holy Scriptures, beginning with the Old Testament, that we learn how to properly answer the question, who do you say I am? That is how the church has always answered it. We just said that no one can know who Jesus is unless the Spirit reveals it to them. How does the Spirit commonly reveal Jesus to us? Well, first and foremost, in the words of Scripture, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know Jesus Christ? Here is where we find him, in his word. The Jesus of the New Testament is the Jesus of the Old Testament, and he is the same Jesus we meet here today in his holy sacrament. But the people who chose our lectionary readings uh, did not stop with John the Baptist's announcement. They've also seen fit to include verses 35 to 42, the story of Jesus' first disciples' response to Jesus' announcement. I think that is perfectly fitting. The next day, Jesus comes by again, and John, seeing him, repeats his announcement. By the way, I love how single-minded John is. He has a very simple mission. Announce the identity of Jesus Christ. So John sees Jesus again, and he shouts it out again. Look, the Lamb of God 
In the end, our own mission is not much more complicated than that. We always do tend to overcomplicate things, don't we? This time, two of John's disciples are with him. And it's almost as if, in light of what John had said the day before, uh, they are ready and waiting for Jesus to show up. And when he does, they immediately leave John and follow Jesus. One of the two disciples, it says in verse 40, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It doesn't say who the other one was. But there's a good chance that it was John, the gospel writer himself. He does the same thing later in the gospel. He doesn't name himself. Instead, he says things like, the disciple Jesus loved, or the other disciple. There's probably a whole sermon in that, but we'll leave it for now. I want to notice just two things about these disciples' response. First, in leaving John to follow Jesus, these disciples show that they have properly understood John's message. John's entire purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus, to announce when Jesus arrived. Once Jesus comes, there's no point in staying with John anymore. Notice John doesn't try to stop them. There's no jealousy there. <laughs> they are doing what John himself has taught them to do. In fact, if they didn't go with Jesus, it would show that they had missed what John had been trying to say all along. Although it's interesting that not all of John's disciples go with Jesus. We meet John's disciples later in the gospel, and even they show up in Acts. Second, I want to notice what their discipleship looks like. Jesus asks them, what do you want? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? As you may have heard before, this was an accepted social relationship at the time. To follow a particular rabbi, you stayed with him, walked around with him, lived your life with him. Both Jesus and these disciples understand this. When the disciples ask, where are you staying? They mean, can we live with you? Can we learn from you? Can we become like you? And Jesus' response is beautifully gentle, I think. I have to imagine he said it with a smile. Come and see. It's the invitation to all disciples of Jesus, even today. By the way, you often see this on church websites or on church signs. I think it's especially a trend among churches that do the, the full liturgy. They like this phrase, come and see. There's a lot of silliness on church signs out there, <laughs> but I, I really like that one. And of course, Christian discipleship is the same now today for you and for me. To be Jesus' disciple is, as the Orthodox like to say, to be always with Christ. It is to live with him day by day, moment by moment. It would not have made sense for these disciples to hear John's declaration that Jesus was the Lamb of God and just to say, wow, amazing. <laughs> that man is the Son of God. Isn't that something? And then keep on living their lives as before. No. If Jesus really is who John the Baptist said he was, then the only proper response is to leave John and to follow Jesus. To live with Jesus. To leave their old lives behind and pattern their lives now 
after him. And that is just what they do. There's a very famous poem, which you may have heard of before, uh, by the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke, called The Archaic Torso of Apollo. It's about a statue that the poet sees in a museum, traveling around Europe, like you did if you were a young romantic poet in the 19th century, visiting museums, seeing beautiful things, having transcendent aesthetic experiences. It's an ancient statue from way back in the classical period, a statue of the old Greco-Roman god Apollo. And it's really just part of the statue because the arms and legs have broken off and the head has broken off too. So all that's left is the torso. But even so, the poet is arrested by this broken statue, even without arms or legs or a head. This torso, he says, is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Something of the power of that old God still glows inside this broken piece of marble. And the poet still feels that he has encountered the divine there, and he's dazzled by it. But it's the last line of the poem that stands out and that really makes the poem for me. The last line is this. You must change your life. It's a jarring line at first. It seems like it belongs in a different poem. He's describing the statue on and on, and then abruptly, you must change your life. But then it starts to make sense. You can't encounter such transcendent beauty and remain the same. Even this little bit of leftover divinity from an old god glowing faintly in the broken, this broken statue in a museum compels Rilke to change. If there is such beauty, such transcendence in the world, it demands a response. First the revelation, and then the response. Change your life. Rilke felt this way after seeing a broken statue of an ancient idol, a god no one even worships anymore. We have encountered this morning in the Holy Scriptures the living God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We can't just go on living as before. Jesus' question, who do you say I am, was not in the abstract. It was not an intellectual question, a question for academic study or idle speculation. It was an urgent question, a question for you and for me, a question that demanded a response. Who do you say I am? Rilke's last line is the same. He could have said, I must change my life. He doesn't say that. He turns it on us. You must change your life. Jesus' question was directed at his disciples, and so it echoes down the ages to us today. And we are invited to answer it every day in the worship of the church, 
in the company of all the faithful as we take up the church's great confession, its prayers and its praises. We are invited to say with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we are invited to do what Jesus' first disciples did, to leave our old lives behind and pattern our lives now after Jesus. You must change your life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.